A word of prayer as we stand. Those verses come from a much, much longer ancient hymn, uh, each verse of which takes a title of Christ given to him long before he was born, long before he ever came to this earth. A title, a name given by a prophet of old, an Old Testament prophet. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for these prophets of old. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to us, searched intensely and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow Loving Father, if the prophets of old could be so truthful and so faithful, may we ourselves inherit some of their spirit. We who live in the much brighter light of him who not only was to come, but has come. And may we know and love and serve him better for our consideration of this, your inspired word. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you have ever dreamt, if you have ever had a dream of your, you know, your, your dream job your, or your dream occupation. Maybe you still dream of doing something <laughs> uh, in the future that you aren't doing at the moment. Or maybe as a child, maybe you want to be a train driver. That's especially the classic stereotype uh, for uh, a child when they grow up. Or maybe you wanted or wants to be a nurse. I can tell you that at least one vacancy for a nurse in the National Health Service because um, I retired finally and completely, I think, um, during my last day of work as a nurse, as a nurse on Friday just two days ago after 45 years. So that's left a vacancy, at least, at least one of them. Um, or maybe you want to be a teacher. That's another good one. Uh, Some of you are, and maybe some of you would like to be a teacher. Or maybe your dream occupation is something a bit more uh, unusual. And what follows are real occupations that really would, if you could get hold of the job, would uh, pay you. Uh, You could be a master distiller (laughs) with free samples every day. And... uh, Or you could be a queen's piper... (laughs) Uh, I don't know that... Um, that actually pays quite well. 40,000 40, uh, 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 pounds a year to be the Queen's Piper. Uh, I don't think that being able to do cross-eyes is uh, necessary for the job. And, I mean, and you don't have to actually play the pipes in tune because who knows <laughs> if anybody's playing the bagpipes in tune or not. There's no way of telling us that. Or you could be a real job, this a water slide tester. Pays £20,000 a year if you can uh, secure it. It uh, looks like a lot of fun, and uh, you certainly make some splashes. But uh, I would like to ask you, invite you to engage in a, a thought experiment with me, with me this evening by imagining that you're up for the job of being an Old Testament prophet. You don't have to look like Charlton Heston. You can look just as you are... Um, uh, this evening, but I'd like to imagine this evening that you're up for applying for that job. And I'd like to share with you 
what at least part of the job description for Old Testament prophet might be. We could choose uh, several from the same period. We could choose from the northern kingdom, Hosea or Amos, or from the southern kingdom of Judah, Isaiah, very well-known prophet, but the one we're choosing is Micah, because that's the book we're looking at these current Sunday evenings. And um, if you wish to uh, follow, I'd encourage you to follow my references to Micah in your Bible, uh, in the Church Bible, it's page 931, Micah chapter 2, where we'll find at least some elements of a job description for Micah and people who might want his job when it becomes vacant. So, job description for a prophet like Micah from Micah chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> here's the first thing that you must, that the successful applicant will be able to do. You must be able to name evil for what it really is. Many of the prophets would say, woe to those who call evil good and, uh, and good evil. But uh, a proper prophet like Micah knows how to name evil when he sees it. That's in verses 1 to 5. Uh, we've already had in chapter 1, uh, Will spoke on this uh, last Sunday evening, um, Micah railing against sins against God himself. Sins uh, to do with paganism and sins to do with idolatry. But now, in chapter 2, Micah turns to sins not directly against God, but sins against humankind. In particular, the kinds of sins that Micah is passionate about are the sins that are, um, uh, which involve the unjust treatment of the weak by the strong. There were rich people exploiting uh, uh, poor people and so on. And these are the kinds of sins that uh, Micah is concerned about in chapter 2. And in verse 1, you'll see if you glance, that these people are lying awake at night plotting their schemes and at first light they rush to carry them out. What kinds of schemes? Well, in verse 2, we are told that they seize people's fields and evict them from their houses. These, we could call these people land grabbers. They're looking to grab other people's property, other people's land, other people's houses. In verse 8, we are told that they steal the very clothes from people's backs, as if they were their enemies rather than than their neighbours. They are that grabbing. They are that greedy. In verse 9, we read that these people drive women from their homes. Uh, Presumably these were widows. um, And take God's blessing away from their children. So these are nasty, nasty people. There's a chilling phrase, I think, in verse 1. Why do they do this? Because it is in their power to do it. They do these things because they can. (laughs) Now think about that for the moment. Think about the more recent crimes against humankind that we have read about in the newspaper, perpetrated by celebrities, football coaches, that's the current uh, tragedy that's beginning beginning to emerge, and so many of these are perpetrated by people in power who had power over other people. 
And they did these things because they could and because they thought they could get away with it. And in some cases, they have got away with it for decades and decades. And only later, people start to come forward and, uh, and, and the truth uh, comes out. I think it's a chilling expression. They do it because they can. They do it because it's in their power to do it. Now, going back to these people who are planning and plotting all of these things, uh, lying awake at night in their beds, uh, plotting uh, these things, what do you think they were thinking? What do you think was going through their heads? What do you think that they thought they thought of themselves as they plotted against the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable? Do you think that such a person was thinking, I am an evil, evil person? I'm the very devil incarnate. I'm going to hurt and harm as many people as I can. They weren't thinking that at all. Nobody would think that about themselves, I don't think. Very few. I think that such a person was thinking something very different. I think that such a person was thinking, I am a hard-working businessman. Yes, I run a tight ship. Yes, I'm interested to make a profit, but that's what businesses are all about. I have my shareholders to consider. And if I make a bit of profit for myself, well, I deserve it. And if a few people get hurt along the way, well, that's their lookout. I can't worry about their problems. Do you think it's not much more likely that these people were thinking that rather than they were thinking just how very evil they were? I think so. But I'm just imagining. But... Whatever they were thinking, Micah knows what to call it. In verse 2, he says, they covet. And so although we've described these sins in chapter 2 as sins against humankind, in fact, they are also sins against God and God's commandment. Because the tenth commandment was, thou shalt not covet. Covetousness um, is, I suppose, greed on steroids. Greed says, I want more. I want more than I need. I want more than I have. Covetousness goes one stage further and says, I want it even though it belongs rightfully to another person. Covetousness, Covetousness is wanting something that rightly belongs to somebody else. And that's what Micah calls it. Micah knows what to call it. Micah calls evil by the name it deserves. Yes, we're talking about an Old Testament prophet, but the New Testament is not shy about naming evil also. The Lord Jesus Christ said some very severe things about sin, and especially about the sin of religious people, sins of people like you and me. And Jesus told a parable, told a story about a rich fool. He was rich because he spent his life accumulating stuff and building barns and houses for himself. But God, in the story, says to him, you are a fool this very night. Your soul is required of you. And the Apostle Paul, too, does not shrink from calling sin by its proper names. And Paul is speaking again to professing 
Christians here in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, says Paul, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, do you see the link between Micah chapter 1, sins against God, and Micah chapter 2, sins against humankind? Is there not a link? There has to be a link. There is a link. Paul says there's a link. Covetousness, wanting what belongs rightfully to other people, is a form of idolatry, because it's worshipping things, objects, possessions, rather than and instead of God. On account of these, says Paul, the wrath of God is coming. Neither Christ nor the apostles mince their words when speaking about sin. So the first thing, if you want this job of being an Old Testament prophet, you need to be able to name evil for what it really is. The second thing you need to be able to do is to be willing to swim against the tide of popular opinion. That's verses 6 to 11. You need to be willing to swim against the tide of popular opinion. Because what were the other prophets saying? Look at verse 6. They were saying to Micah, don't prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Nothing bad will happen to us. Look, We've accumulated things. We've got many possessions. We are strong. Everything is coming up roses. Just don't worry about it. Don't be such a prophet of doom, Micah, for goodness sake. And uh, note what Micah says in, uh, in verse 11. Um, yeah, you, want to, you want me to prophesy for plenty of wine and beer. Prophesy a party for me. Prophesy some fun for me. Prophesy a good time for me. Yeah, if I did that, says Micah, I'd be just the prophet for these people, because that's what they want to hear. But Micah isn't going to go with the flow. He's not going to go with the optimistic majority. He refuses to do so. Because Micah says, to and about these people who have been plotting against the weak and the vulnerable, Micah says the Lord has been doing some plotting of his own. Verse 3. The Lord says through Micah, I am planning disaster against these people from which they cannot save themselves. Verse 4, those who have brought ruin to others will find themselves utterly ruined. Verse 10, those who have stolen the the lands and houses of others will themselves be homeless. And verse 4, the, uh, a lament, a dirge is put in the mouths of these uh, evil people. And the, dirge, the words of the dirge go as you can see there. The Lord has taken our land away and give it to those who took us captive. Because the background here is that the Assyrians were a big threat against Judah at the time. And uh, the time would come when all of these lands that these wicked people had accumulated will be taken from them and be given, well, I'm not quite sure, either to the Assyrian invaders or to the poor people, back to the poor people from whom they had been taken originally. Either way, the wicked people who had 
illegally and immorally gain these lands and these fields, will lose them. Let me we interrupt this transmission to introduce you to Bishop Ryle. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of Bishop Ryle. He's certainly a favourite author of Will and of me. Uh, and, uh, whoops, go back to that in a moment. Uh, he was um, uh, a minister for nearly 40 years in uh, Suffolk, uh, Helmingham and Stradbrook. He became the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool, and he died in the year 1900 in, at Lowestoft, actually. Uh, bishop Ryle. But at, at what people, even if, if they've heard of Bishop Ryle, may not realise there's actually two Bishop Ryles. His son, Herbert Edward Ryle, was also a bishop, Bishop of Winchester. I can just make out there on the, on, on the postcard. Now, John Charles Ryle, even in his own day, would have been considered, was considered, an old-fashioned evangelical a plain-speaking, old-fashioned evangelical. His son, Herbert Edward Ryle, also a bishop, was a brilliant Old Testament scholar and would have been known in his own day as a progressive and a modernist. Which of the two Bishop Ryles is remembered today? The one who was prepared to stand alone, taking the words of a recent biography published within the last year, uh, prepared to stand alone. I noticed that uh, we had chosen that uh, um, as our affirmation of faith, uh, which we kind of struggled through, but it was quite deep, (laughs) Uh, a creed associated with the name of Athanasius. And here was another Christian leader, prepared to stand alone. Somebody once said to Athanasius, well, it was 300, 400 AD? Sort of, sort of. Um, so an old father of the church. Uh, somebody once said to Athanasius, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius replied, well, in that case, I'm against the world. <laughs> Prepared to stand alone. Micah, Athanasius, Bishop Ryle, the elder, the father, and many others who are now honoured in the church because they were willing to, to swim against the tide of popular... Not just for the sake of being mavericks, not just for the sake of being awkward, <laughs> uh, perish the thought, but because they were faithful to God and his word and his gospel. When I was a very young Christian, I read various things by Bishop Ryle, and those words in particular stung me stung me into, I think, more action and reaction as a Christian than otherwise I might have experienced, where he says, I fear much for many professing Christians. I see no sign of fighting in them, much less of victory. They never strike one stroke on the side of Christ. They were the words in particular that that hit me as a young Christian. Do I strike strokes on the side of Christ? What have I done today or this week or even this year as a soldier for Christ? They are at peace with Christ's enemies. They have no quarrel with sin. Reader, I warn you, 
This is not Christianity. This is not the way to heaven. Let us honor the faithful warnings of followers and lovers of God, both old and new. So you must be willing to swim against the tide of popular opinion, as these men and plenty of women too were prepared to do. Thirdly, if you want to be an Old Testament prophet, you need to know when to warn and when to reassure. We've seen lots of warning from Micah, but Micah isn't simply a prophet of doom. He also knows, with the Spirit of God upon him, when to reassure, when to hold out a message of hope. And if you'll glance with me, whoops, at the last two verses of our chapter, you'll see suddenly, surprisingly, he turns from warning to hope. Story is told of um, a factory where a machine broke down and the whole factory came to a halt. Nothing could be produced. And they couldn't fix the machine, so they got an outside expert engineer in to fix the machine. And the expert came along, looked at the machine, waited for him, got a hammer out and tapped the machine and the machine started working again. And, uh, so, and then he submitted his invoice. And the invoice was two, for £200. And the uh, manager of the factory were outraged. £200, but all you did was hit it with a hammer. We want an itemised invoice. So he wrote them an itemised invoice for the £200 for mending their machine. For, hit it, for hitting the machine with a hammer, £10. For knowing where to hit and when, and how hard, £190. A prophet needs to know when, and where, and how hard, and to whom, and all the rest of it. To hit with either a message of warning, or a message of hope, and encouragement, and reassurance. A prophet needs to know whether... The limited light shining over a church or a city or a land is twilight or dawn. A prophet needs to know whether the light at the end of the tunnel is daylight or an approaching express train. It's called discernment, folks. And Micah knows what the message of reassurance is and to whom it applies. Verse 12 and following. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. Micah can look beyond punishment, beyond defeat, beyond exile, and see God's people gathered together again. Does that remind you of anyone? That gathering together, that shepherd gathering together. David was a shepherd. What about great David's greater son, who said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd gathered together. Micah, the Lord also says through Micah about uh, concerning one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them and the Lord at their head. You notice there, it's not about breaking into anything, it's about breaking out. The picture here, I think, is of 
the Assyrian king, a brief mention before Sennacherib, um, he, uh, he, he invaded Judah and overran towns and villages and uh, fields and houses and this kind of thing. He came to Jerusalem, um, uh, laid Jerusalem under siege, but never entered. This is under, you can read this in various Old Testament books, uh, what the Lord did uh, through a a faithful king, uh, Hezekiah. And in the end, Hezekiah and his people were able to break out of Jerusalem and defeat the invaders with very much the Lord's help because they had the angel of the Lord on their side. Details there, but that's the picture there. But again, this points forward, this idea of a breaker, a liberator. Have you not read the words of Jesus who said, if the Son sets you free, if the Son liberates you, you will be free indeed. So there's your, at least a part of a job description for an Old Testament prophet. I invite applications from any of you. Or perhaps from all of us. Perhaps we want to be a church that lives um, and ministers and believes and worships with these truths at heart. But in any case, whether as an individual or as a church, if we want to be in the spirit of Micah and the other Old Testament prophets, we need to be able to, uh, to name evil for what it really is. We need to be able to be willing to swim against the tide of popular opinion and we must know when to warn and when to reassure. And above all, even as Micah did and all the other, Moses and all the other prophets point in every way to Jesus because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for those men and women who saw your coming from afar off and spoke in the light of that to the situation in their own day. May we know something and have something of Micah's passion for truth, passion for justice, and above all, passion for you and your word and for living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.